This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Well, if you were not here last week, or uh, you may not know that Steve was scheduled to be preaching today, and his father's health took a turn for the worst, and so he flew out after the service last Sunday and was able to get there in time before his father passed uh, on Monday. And uh, Steve's parents' church uh, gifted them uh, plane tickets so that Michelle and the boys could join Steve and be there Saturday for the memorial service. And Michelle uh, emailed me last night and said, um, you know, that Steve was able to preach. He co-officiated that service and to just be there and be fully present. And so we want to continue to pray for them this time of remembrance, but also grieving. Michelle and the boys will fly back today, and Steve will fly home early this week after the burial service. So let me pray for them. Father, we're grateful for Steve and Michelle for you bringing them here and Uh, for their perseverance and faithfulness to sunset. And we pray right now as you would give Michelle and the boys just a time to continue to remember uh, their father-in-law, grandfather, and as they fly home, that you would keep them safe, that you would prepare them to re-enter life, which is always difficult after a loss. Uh, We pray that you'd be with Steve that you would restore the energy that it took to be with people, I'm sure, for an entire day, and uh, to be present, to honor his father, um, and to just minister to the people there, as well as to grieve his own loss. We pray that you'd be with him as he flies home, that you would bring him back uh, with a sense of restoration, and uh, even in the weariness that I'm sure will be there. Father, you know that this is a passage that I dearly love. I have taught it in Bible studies. I'm sure I've preached on it at some time in my life. Taught it over and over again in seminary classes. But this week I struggled to know what you wanted to say to this church at this time. So I pray that you would use my words. Thank you for the dependence that you create in me in those times around your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So someone put me on to a little book called The All Better Book some time ago. It's written by a second grade teacher, and she was curious about how kids might solve problems. So she says, one Wednesday I asked a class of second graders to write down how they'd clean up oil slicks. Next I tried having them end all wars. And by the time I got to patching a hole in the ozone, I was pretty sure there wasn't a problem they couldn't solve. And thus The All Better Book. Would you like to hear some of these kids' wisdom? All right. Question. There is so much care put into hair, and its loss is hard to bear. That's a great question for a second grader, isn't it? What do you recommend? Well, Danny, age eight, said, put a dog or furry animal on your head, and it will look like hair. (laughs) Amanda, age eight, was just as practical. She says, use Rogaine. If that doesn't work, get a wig. If, a wi- if no wig fits, get a hat. And if you don't like to wear hats, glue hair from someone else's hairbrush. 
question, do you know of any no-fail diets? Andrew, age eight, says, wear tight belts every day, lots of them. You don't have to exercise. (laughs) Michael, also age eight, had a much more sophisticated solution, and I love this one. I got to say, I read it again this morning and laughed in my car by myself. Mix slim fast, chopped hot tamales, peanut butter, just a little, eggs, tiny apple slices, applesauce, tomato sauce, and water. After you eat it, go for a jog. I I just, I want to know what was going on in his brain as he made that list of things and why only just a little peanut butter and tiny apple slices, no amounts given on the rest of the ingredients. Okay. So what did they do with very serious issues? Question, can you think of a cure for prejudice? Jonathan, age 10, says, if people act prejudiced, make them wear plaid jackets, plaid shirts, plaid pants, and plaid sneakers that say don't be prejudiced on them. (laughs) That one might work. Becca, age nine, says everyone should invite someone who is different to their house for dinner once a week. That's actually a really good solution. Josh, age 10, had a more global solution. Listen to this. At the age of 15, 16, 17, or 18, everyone should go somewhere else in the world for up to five years and make at least one friend. (laughs) Pretty sophisticated. And finally, the problem that we're going to look at today. Question, with billions of people in the world... Someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? Well, Max, age nine, was very creative and inventive. He says, make food that talks to you when you eat. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? That would wig me out a little bit. Shauna, age nine, says, we could all visit one lonely person each week. You know what? I think Shauna could have been the brainchild behind Meals on Wheels, don't you? Yeah. Kalani, age eight, says people should find lonely people and ask them for their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an even amount of each, assign lonely people to not lonely people together in the newspaper. (laughs) Janet, that's a solution you would have come up with. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that's it. Yeah, that girl has the gift of administration. Did you know that loneliness is considered considered to be epidemic in our world today. In 2018, Theresa May, then Prime Minister of Britain, appointed a minister of loneliness. And she stated, far too many people, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. We know that from research that loneliness affects our health. Loneliness in older adults is worse for their health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Studies have shown that loneliness is one of the factors associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and he's been studying loneliness since the 1990s. And he says that loneliness is much like a signal. uh, It's like a signal. It's like hunger or uh, pain or even tiredness. And denying that you feel lonely makes no more sense than denying that you feel hungry. But one of the problems that he identified with loneliness is that we see it negatively. We see it in a negative connotation. So we're prone not to want to admit that we are lonely because we assume that it means we're socially weak, socially undesirable, that we have an inability to stand on our own. 
I want to identify three kinds of loneliness today. I'm sure there's many more categories we could come up with, but I want to just identify three different kinds of loneliness. The first one is what I'm going to call cultural loneliness. Now, I define cultural loneliness as something that is unique to our time and place in history. I don't know if any of you have ever read the stories of people who came out west on wagon trains and settled, you know, from the, uh, you know, Rockies on, and, or maybe those that went up to Alaska. But what we know from many of the diaries and journals is that those that settled, say, on a ranch or a farm with very few people around them or went to Alaska, in the dead of winter when no one could get to them, they suffered from incredible loneliness. Well, today, our struggle with loneliness coincides with a time where we live the most technologically connected lives in human history. We can call someone around the world, we can text them, we can use Facebook or Instagram or any other number of social networks uh, to reach out to people, and yet, so often, we are, the, we are suffering with the greatest amount of loneliness, that, and they... they actually wonder if it's the greatest loneliness in human history. Neil Howe is a historian, a demographer, and leading authority on generational trends. He's the one who actually coined the term millennials, and he reports loneliness is the number one fear of young people today, ranking ahead of losing a home or a job. He cites that becoming Uh, that the idea of loneliness has become so ingrained in the very lexicon of the millennials that they've immortalized it in acronyms like FOMO. And if you don't know what that is, ask your grandkids. You no longer have to call a business to talk or talk to a person. You can search a business website. You can be served by an automated system. You can check out almost any store and not be greeted or interact with a clerk. And you can have your groceries delivered soon by drone and never have to leave your home. And it makes me wonder if someday we'll see businesses that are designed to simply bring people together so they can talk face-to-face. Oh, wait a minute. We've already done that. It's called counseling. I think I may know something about that world. Actually, really, this was what Starbucks founded their company on. There, um, when, they, when they first started promoting careers and opportunities in Starbucks, this was their line, create community, make a difference in someone's day. Creating an environment where neighbors and friends can get together and reconnect while enjoying a great coffee experience. That shows us that we're living in a culture of loneliness. So that's cultural loneliness. I want to talk about situational loneliness. Situational loneliness is something that almost everyone experiences at some point in their lifetime. Now, I know there are those of you here today for whom uh, an hour or two or a day alone would be an amazing experience. You would like to feel lonely because you spend your day with maybe multiple kids or toddlers, and you feel like you're, you know, it would be impossible to feel lonely given the press of people on your life. But the reality is that's for a certain season of life, isn't it? And then it shifts and changes. 
Situational loneliness almost always has an identifiable source. Let me give you a list. You change schools. Your parents move and you change schools. And you walk into a school and you don't know anyone there. And if you've ever done that, you understand. You feel a little bit of loneliness. You finish high school. Your friends have all uh, that you've been in school with for four or more years have scattered are off to college, and either you've chosen a different route or you're off to a college, but you don't know anyone there, and you will feel lonely. You finish college, and you take a place, you take a job in a new city. You will feel lonely. You break up with a girlfriend or a boyfriend that was a serious relationship, one you thought was going somewhere. You will feel lonely. Your family moves away. Something takes them to a different part of the country. You will feel lonely. You remain single when all your friends are getting married. You will feel lonely. Uh, You go through a divorce at any season of your life. You will feel lonely. You are childless. You will have a sense of aloneness, loneliness. You and your family move for a job opportunity, and you know no one, and your extended family is now far away. Anyone who's made that kind of a move, and I'm assuming there probably is someone here in this room who just moved to Portland, Oregon, and you aren't sure you like Portland, Oregon, and you're wondering, it really does rain all the time in Portland, Oregon, and you don't know anyone, and you're trying to connect, and this is a new church, and you feel lonely. You lose a parent. You will feel a sense of loneliness. Even though life will go on and you're surrounded by people, there's a rupture in your family, in relationships, and people feel far away. You will feel lonely. You have cancer or some other life-threatening disease, or you struggle with mental health issues, and you feel like everyone around you is doing so well, and no one would get what you're going through. So you put on a smile and face the day. But behind that, you're lonely. You retire. You no longer have work relationships to feel connected and useful. You will experience loneliness. You lose a spouse to death. Had a moment this morning with Hazel up there and a moment to pray with she and Mike Holtzgang. And she shared that this is five years this month she lost her husband Uh, five years ago. They had been married 66 years. And yet, she's content. And I relate to that. But there's this thing about being, I'm not married anymore, but I don't feel single. But that person's not there. Clearly, the list could go on and on. And while many of the sources of loneliness are more obvious, it's still loneliness. The last little category of loneliness I want to talk about is what I call existential or inner loneliness. I really struggle to give a label to this kind of loneliness, but I want to identify it as being different than the first two and more complex. This is the I am in a room full of people and I am all alone. This is I am on a max train, surrounded by people, bumping into people, and I am all alone. I mean, this is that kind of feeling. Um, Some of you know immediately what I'm talking about. This is a loneliness that is ours by virtue of the fall. 
And we often mask it by trying to fill our lives with people and things, good things often, but we're trying to get rid of that existential or inner loneliness. Um, We're not there yet in the story of Genesis. I'm assuming we're going there. But in chapter 3, something happens. And the world that was connected becomes disconnected. Uh, Adam and Eve are now disconnected from God. They are disconnected from one another. And they are disconnected from the world that God gave them to care for and steward. And this kind of disconnection is at the heart of this inner loneliness. I want you to do me a favor, if you would. Would you all stand? I know you're, some of you are taking notes and doing all that, but would you all just stand? Okay. And look forward. Okay. Let's, I was going to say, um, let's pretend like I'm God. But then I thought, no, that, that doesn't, that's not, that probably wouldn't be good. So let's, let, let's say I represent God. Okay. And can you all see me? Yeah. Yeah. Do you all feel kind of connected? Because you can see me, okay? Now I want you to look around the room. Turn 360 degrees. 360 degrees. Do you see everybody else? Not everyone, but do you see a lot of people? Yeah. Okay. This is life before the fall. Connected to God. Connected to one another. Now, everybody turn around and stay completely still. Do not look to your right or to your left. So turn around, opposite direction. Do not look to your right or to your left. How do you feel? Isn't it amazing how once we're disconnected from faces, from seeing people? Okay, you can go ahead and turn back around, sit down. Do you see the difference? When you turned around, that's the disconnected world. That's the disconnected world. And once disconnection came into our world, the author of disconnection, who is Satan, now delights to enhance it. How does he do this? His message to us is, I am alone in a world of people, and it will always be this way. His message is, maybe I deserve to be alone. Maybe I'm so different from other people that I don't deserve what they seem to have. His message is, no one wants me around. Now, the ultimate source of aloneness is the fall. But it gets further cemented in a broken world, a disconnected world, sometimes in our families of origin, most often unintentionally, but sometimes by parents whose own wounds severely keep them from being loving and kind and nurturing. And they just simply create greater disconnection. It gets deepened each and every time we experience rejection. And its roots, at its roots, are really shame. Uh, Shame whispers, I'm not worthy. I didn't earn acceptance. I could never be accepted. I'm not good enough. No one would ever want to be around me. I'm too needy. I'm too damaged. That's shame. And we often choose unhealthy ways of dealing with this loneliness, by the way. We isolate. And... When we aren't in relationship, we suffer natural consequences. We develop a fear, greater fear of intimacy. We become selfish. Disconnected people tend to be selfish, not because they want to be selfish, but because if I'm all by myself and I'm the only one that will take care of me, then I have to kind of become protective of myself and my resources. And we lose perspective. We lose perspective. When we live in isolation, we can easily 
lose perspective on life. We think this is how it's always going to be. Satan longs for us to stay in those places. He really does. His strategy is to keep us in isolation so he can destroy us. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 11 when he said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But he said, I'm the good shepherd, and I have come to protect my sheep. And you notice in the stories of Jesus as a shepherd, he says, I'll leave the 99, the herd, that probably won't get attacked because they're all together, to go after the one that gets disconnected from the flock. Now, people can help with this internal uh, kind of existential loneliness. Their kindness, their care, their comfort does make a difference. But just having another human cannot heal this kind of loneliness. That's why finding a spouse, having kids, getting the right job, buying the right house, right neighborhood, even finding the right church does not remove this kind of internal loneliness. This is a journey that you and God have to go on. And it's healed in our experience of God, which, by the way, requires us to also sit with ourselves. And we see this reality In verses like Psalm 73, where it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And and earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. This is the kind of thing at its core that helps heal that existential, that inner loneliness. Now, I could go on and on and on with the psychological, medical, social science research on how destructive loneliness is, but long before we were able to study and quantify and research it, God knew that it was not good. And this is where we get to our passage this morning. If you uh, have a Bible and you want to turn to Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to read a short section of that chapter. We are in the creation story. Last week, Pastor Steve walked us through that story. It's the story of a God who is good uh, and created a good and very good world, starting from the division of water and land, moving to increasingly complex and creative system. God creates a world that is amazing to live in. And despite the fact that we've had a not-so-fabulous summer and it's raining uh, on almost the last day of summer in Oregon, all it takes is a full moon or a clear day or a view of Mount Hood or a sunrise for us to say, God gave us a good world. God is a generous host that even though it has fallen and groans, Uh, As we're told in the New Testament, it's still a good world that we live in. And the climax or the pinnacle of creation, what made it very good, was the creation of humankind. And so God created mankind. Steve read this last week. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And Pastor Steve said last week that every human is worthy of respect and love because they've been made in the image of God. 
Some theologians see Genesis 1 as this poetic overview of creation, and chapter 2 is a deeper dive into the details. So let's pick up at uh, chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Well, hopefully we'll get to that in the next couple weeks if you've got questions about that. So, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper. Don't get hung up on the word helper, by the way. It's not an assistant, ladies. Um, it, it, It actually means a strength corresponding to him, corresponding to him. And uh, so the Lord uh, caused man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And by the way, I always think of that movie, While You Were Sleeping. See, God, God did that movie first before anyone else did. While you were sleeping, I made you a partner. Uh, the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, for she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Completely open. This is not just physical nakedness. This is, I open my heart and my life to you for your enjoyment, for your pleasure, for your exploration, because they did not automatically know one another. They were not omniscient as God was but they could stand before one another with no barriers, no disconnection before God or before each other. Now, one of the most startling pieces of this whole passage, and by the way, like I said, I teach this in seminary, and so we dig deep into every piece of this. So we're going to just camp on verse 18 here. But what's most startling is that God says in a world that he declared very good, something wasn't good. John Ortberg makes an observation. He says, what is striking is that the fall has not yet occurred. There's no sin, no disobedience, nothing between the relationship between God and man. The human being was in a state of perfect intimacy with God. Each word he and God spoke spoke with each other is filled with closeness and joy. He walks with God in the garden of the cool of the day. He's known and loved to the core of his being by his omniscient, love-filled creator. And yet the word God uses to describe him is alone. And God says the aloneness is not good. So God sets out to do something about it. He creates him another person. Now, we often think about this in the context of marriage. And of course it is because obviously marriage is how they were going to be fruitful and multiply. So Adam and Eve create a family. The family then creates a community. The community then creates a world of people. Um, But before God makes him this helper, he gives him an assignment, which is so interesting. Why does he give him an assignment? I have always loved 
what Donald Miller says about this part of Genesis in his book, Searching for God Knows What. He says, now, I've read this about God giving him assignment to name all the animals a thousand times, just glancing over it, you know. But this time, I actually thought about what would be involved in a job as big as naming the animals. In my mind, this had been an effortless action. Adam sits on a log with his hand on his chin. God parades the animals by rather quickly. Adam calls out names under his breath. Buffalo, chimp, horse, mouse, lizard, buffalo. Uh, Wait, did I already say buffalo? Uh, Well, then how about cow? Did I already say cow? But could it really have been that effortless? How long did it take Adam to name all the animals in the world? Um, and he says, and I looked up how many animals there were in the world, and it turns out there's between 10 million and 100 million different species. And I'm not sure how many are around the time of creation, but I assume a lot. And Adam apparently had to name all of them, and the entire time he was lonely. Donald Miller says, I never looked at that passage again the same way. So we know that there wasn't a helper found, and so God puts him to sleep and fashions a woman. Again, we, thought, we think about marriage, but at the core, this is a statement about the importance of our connecting well with others. Many of you know that Blaise Pascal has said that there is a heart, there's a God-shaped hole in every human being. What we learn from this passage is there is also a human-shaped hole in every person. Now, what happens in a fallen world is that we get hurt. We feel rejected. We live with the deep disappointment that people are not attuning to our needs the way we think they should, the way we need them to. And the result is we can decide, you know what, I don't like that human-shaped hole. I know I did. I did for many years. I decided that I was not going to need people. I mean, I really, I mean, I'm dead serious about this. I was not going to need people. And I was a pastor. (laughs) Now, I was happy meeting other people's needs. I was happy to do that. Although, I wonder how well I did it, since I didn't want to believe that I had any of those same needs. But nonetheless, I, for a number of years in my life, I had this thing, God and me against the world. You know, just that's how we're going to do this. So I was teaching at Multnomah School of the Bible, and that tells you how long ago that was, Um, And uh, because it's no longer Multnomah School of the Bible, it's Multnomah University. But I was teaching there at the time, adjunct faculty, and I ran into my mentor, uh, Dr. Pamela Reeve, and kind of a spiritual mother to me in many ways. And I ran into her, it was about two days before Christmas break. I remember exactly where we were downstairs in the library, in this hallway of classrooms. And she paused and said, how are you, dear? And whenever she asked you a question, you knew she was not saying, she did not want to hear, fine, you know. So I said, you know, I'm kind of struggling with something. I said, I thought you put God at the center of your life, and then he spills out and fills all of the empty spaces in your life. But I'm feeling this intense sense of emptiness in this one area, and particularly, you know, just this intense sense of emptiness. And she looked at me and she said, Oh, no, no, no. She always said everything in threes. I don't know why, but she just did. She said, you put God at the center of your life, and he spills over and then spins you around and turns you out into the world like a beggar woman. And this is what I said. Well, have a wonderful Christmas. I See you next year. And I turned and walked away. And that is the God honest truth. 
And I knew that whatever she just said, I did not like at all. And there was no way in the world I was going to consider being a beggar woman. It took me about six to nine months before I went back and sat at her kitchen table and said, okay, okay, tell me about this beggar woman. And we talked about what it means to vulnerably need people. And here's the kicker. And to choose to need them even when they don't come through. And that's the hard part, isn't it? To choose to trust God, to let God invite me to this life of needing people, to trust him that this need for humans is part of his plan, and that he assures me that while they will not always meet my needs the way I want them to, he will still use others to minister to me. Why? Well, because second graders may have come up with some pretty good ideas to solve loneliness, but Jesus came up with the best plan. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you know God, if you know Jesus and his love, then in reality, you have the antidote to loneliness. Will it always go the way you think it should? No. But we still are called by God to engage with other people. I want to do circle back. I'm almost out of time here, so I'm going to do this very quickly and talk about each of those areas, cultural loneliness, uh, you know, situational loneliness, existential loneliness, Let me just say this, you know, there are ways to utilize social media that actually connects with people. As I was coming in, I ran into Melinda and John Groth, and I told Melinda I was going to use her as an example this morning, and because it was public, I didn't think I had to ask her permission, but I would warn her. Melinda, uh, I know I could say the same thing about you that Janet said about Carson, your life has not been easy. And I know that you have experienced these kinds of loneliness. But Melinda has chosen to use Facebook to minister to people. And if you're in her friend circle, you know that on your birthday, you will get a beautiful picture and a message. And because she is a prayer warrior and connected to God and has has the gift of intercession, it will be a blessing for you. And I've watched her can do that over and over again and seen the beauty of using social media to connect with people. Um, we, have, we can do so much as a church about situational loneliness, but the only way we're going to do anything about those is we have to not assume everyone's okay. And go back to the sermon series, It's Okay to Not Be Okay, If you haven't, you know, go back and listen to that one because we have to be okay with people who are not okay, with people that are experiencing loneliness for whatever reason. And we need to just sit with, we don't have to solve it. We just have to be with them. That's such powerful. Someday God will solve all the problems in the world, right? Revelation tells us that. But for now, what has he chosen to do? Be with us. 
And that's what he calls us to do with others. Inner loneliness, existential loneliness, this one's a little tougher. We need to model how you can build a deeper relationship with God. One that actually helps us truly understand who he is, to be able to sit with him, to be able to sit with ourselves, to understand shame and its roots. And, you know, maybe we should do a class here about that or something like that. But that one's a little tougher. It's a little more complex. But remember, even with that one, human kindness, human connection goes a long way. We're about to invite you to consider being part of a small group here at Sunset. And I'm here to tell you, a small group is not the answer to loneliness. No program is. But the people in that small group could be. It's not the small group. It's the people in that small group willing to open their hearts and their lives to people that are maybe not at all like them. And don't just assume that everyone goes looking for a small group. Ask the people around you. You ever wanted to be in a small group? Would you like to come visit ours? Invite. Let's pray. Father, you have given us the answer to loneliness. You sent your Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we would not be alone even though In your human form, you returned to the Father. You gave us that comforter to comfort us in that inner loneliness that we often feel. And Father, you have placed a human-shaped hole in each one of us. And though we fight it and resist it, you invite us to live vulnerably, to live needing people, to recognize that if we have that need, so does everybody else. And you may be calling us to meet that need in someone else. Teach us to be a church that understands how to address loneliness in our world today. Teach us to be a body that loves, even at a difficult time in our own church life. I pray that you would help us to be your hands and feet in relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. And if God doesn't leave the one behind, neither should we. We have the love of Christ to share with a lonely world. We have the love of Christ to share with those that are lonely that are here among us. Let's do that as a church. Sunset is a house of prayer for all the nations. I want to invite those of you that are intercessors, elders, and if you want to come down front, There may be someone here today who wants to pray with you, that needs to pray with you. So I want to invite them to come, and as I uh, give the benediction for the rest of us, I want to encourage you to come. Maybe you want to just come, you don't need to pray with someone, but just to stand at the front here, to pray for those in your life that you know need that touch of love and uh, need to have their loneliness alleviated. So come, prayer warriors. May God bless you and keep you. May you sense his face shining upon you even on a rainy day. And may you share the love of God with those around you and experience it more deeply in your life. Go in peace.